This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is a blessing to be standing before you to fellowship and share a word of encouragement. We thank God for this season of kindred where we get to come together uh, as the multi-ethnic family of God and to reflect his character and his love uh, to this city. And so I'm excited about what God is doing in us and what he's getting ready to do through us. Uh, no doubt God is taking us deeper as a uh, family of three churches. And so I look forward to this time together where we get to study together, to pray together, to worship together, and to serve together. Because we're, we're headed toward that greater reality of Revelation 7-9 when it says, I saw people from every tribe, from every nation. And so we want to uh, embody that now before we get to heaven. And so we thank God for this opportunity. There is a word from the Lord. We've been operating under the theme, return to the Redeemer. And it's actually let the nations return to the Redeemer. And so my preaching task today is, is taken from Isaiah 59. And I want to hang as a title over this passage, uh, the salvific hand of God, the salvific hand of God. It was the German philosopher and atheist Friedrich Nietzsche who was the first philosopher to proclaim that God is dead. Uh, he was very critical of institutionalized Christianity and in Christians uh, in particular. Nietzsche had thought long and hard about Jesus Christ and his followers, so much so that one writer put it, on occasion he spoke, on many occasions he spoke respectfully of Jesus Christ, but not of his followers. So much so that, as one writer put it, uh, Nietzsche uttered these words, he says, if Christianity means faith in a historical event, or in a historical person, then I will have nothing to do with Christianity. But he goes on to utter these words. He says, on the other hand, if it means simply to be in need of redemption, then I can esteem it highly. I might believe in the Redeemer when his followers look a little more redeemed. What an interesting statement uh, that he makes, Nietzsche makes. No, no doubt he's had some interaction with Christians and, and, and perhaps Christianity and, and watching the behavior of Christians had turned him off. But what did Nietzsche mean by this phrase, a little more redeemed? Maybe he saw some aspects of redeem, redemption in their lives, but he said if, if they might look a little more redeemed, and perhaps that's what the prophet Isaiah has in mind and is saying to the nation of Israel in chapter 59 of Isaiah. They weren't looking redeemed. They certainly weren't behaving like a redeemed people. And I would submit to you today that there are certain characteristics of people who look a little more redeemed, to use Nietzsche's phrase. Because I believe uh, redeemed people live transformed lives. 
that they are changing. They are, they are looking more and more like they belong to the Redeemer. Uh, and that they are governed by kingdom ethics, that their ethical way of doing life and living life is not contingent on what happens on earth, but it's contingent on what God says in his word. And that redeemed people live justice-oriented lives. In other words, the, the light switch of justice is always on. That their ears and their eyes are always open to do what's right in the sight of God. And so, brothers and sisters, I think that's what this text is telling us, that redeemed people live transformed lives. If you don't get anything else out of this text, redeemed people are governed by kingdom ethics and that they live justice-oriented lives. Some of you may be wondering about this word salvific. Now, this word salvific means having the intent or power to save or redeem. Having the intent, and it's always used in the context of Jesus Christ and the context of God. And, and, and what I want to, want to say here is that the salvific hand of God carries with it the idea that God can make it happen. Uh, that God has the power to back up everything he says in his word. So let's, let's, let's look at Isaiah 59. Uh, we're going to take a panoramic view. We won't be able to take any deep dives into uh, all of this, but we're going to look at fir first and foremost at verses 1 through 8. And this is what I want to say about verses 1 through 8, that the salvific hand of God begins with the end in mind. What does God have in mind? Well, he has transformation in mind. Uh, he, he wants to transform uh, the people of God. So let's look at verses 1 through 8. Follow with me as I read verses 1 through 8. It says, see, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Rather, your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity and your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one brings suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas. They speak lies, conceiving mischief and begetting iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. And whoever eats their eggs dies and the crushed egg hatches out a viper. Their webs cannot serve as clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil and they rush to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. Their roads 
they have made crooked. No one walks who walks in them knows peace. What does God have in mind when we look at verses 1 through 8? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. He, he begins with, in graphic detail, with what separates us from him. He begins with the, the sin problem. He says in so many words to Israel, Israel, we have a problem. And when you acknowledge the problem of your sin, then and only then can we talk about deliverance. Then and only then can we talk about salvation. God saying, you're, you're not taking me seriously, Israel. You're treating me like I'm a little God. You have forgotten how big I am. And in verses 1 and 2, the prophet Isaiah begins to speak to the people on God's behalf. Isaiah serves as a mediator between God and the people of Israel. So he speaks prophetically to the people on God's behalf. And by responding to the people's complaint, obviously the talk around town was that God, God is absent. God is dead. God seems to have rheumatism in his right hand and he's hard of hearing. He needs hearing aids because he's responding. He's not responding to their prayers. They thought that something was wrong with the hands and ears of God that made him fail to act on their behalf and respond appropriately. Uh, there, there's some striking imagery in this text, and one is, is talking about the hands of God, that, uh, in talking about the hands, that the hands of God are holy. And the hands of Israel have is soaked in blood. It's the hands of iniquity. And so God has a problem with them when they show up in worship on Sunday and the people lift up their hands to worship God, but their hands are stained with blood. And the hands of God is being contrasted with the hands of men in this text. And God is intrinsically holy and humanity is intrinsically evil. You see, Israel is always expecting God to deliver them because, after all, they're God-chosen people. After all, they, they are under the assumption that God will deliver them and ignore their iniquities. God says, I, I can't do that. The text seems to imply that God has to turn his face because it, 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 the, the city, of the children of Israel have committed sin so intentionally and it's so graphic, God says, it's your sin that keeps me from acting and delivering you. It's your sin problem that I, I have to keep my, myself away from your sin. You have to deal with the sin problem. And because of Israel's willful and persistent rebellion, the nation became unable to take action against the sins. You see, what happens when sin fills the vacuum left, sin fills the vacuum left when God's truth no longer fills our lives. Israel isn't having separation anxieties. They, they don't even know that God has separated himself from them. And due to their sinful state of a, as a nation, they thought something was wrong with God. What's wrong with you, God? And they didn't think anything was wrong with them. 
up until this point, they have been clueless as to the actions of God and his Jehovistic whereabouts. Do they not know that God is everywhere at the same time, that he's omnipresent? Therefore, there is chaos in Israel. So verses 1 and 2 lays out the, 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 the relationship between God and Israel has been severed as a result of their sin. And we often define sin as anything that separates us from God. And so we see in this text, that's exactly what happens in Israel's life. And that's exactly what happens in our lives, that we cannot willfully and intentionally live in sin and think that God is going to condone that and congratulate you in living in sin. This is what this text is saying, verses 1 and 2, and verses 3 through 8. The prophet does a deep dive into the nature of sin and evil. Isaiah leaves no stone unturned. It's very graphic. The graphic imagery depicts the viciousness and the futility of a society that is dominated by sin. It is a manifestation of systemic injustice, systemic oppression. In other words, it's intentional, it's premeditated. When, when the children of Israel, when they got up, they were, they were thinking what they were going to do sinful on that day. Because they had been wrapped up in so much idolatry that they forgot that they were in a covenant relationship with God. And so when we look at verses 3 through 8, one gets the sense that it's almost as if God is a prosecuting attorney and calls Israel to the witness stand. God is the judge, the jury, and the prosecuting attorney because he is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent, so he doesn't need a jury. He, he says to them in so many words that I was at the scene of the crime. I don't need a cell phone nor a body camera to see who is right and to see who was wrong, to detect truth from error. I am appalled at your inability to do justice and to love mercy. This passage made me think that in all of the crime and the violence that we've seen throughout 2020 and 2021 and, and prior to that, but when I began to think that God was at the scene of the crime when George Floyd was killed, that God was at the scene of the crime when Breonna Taylor was shot and killed, that God was at the scene of the crime when Anthony Brown Jr. was shot and killed. God's, God is saying in this text that when man fails to act justly, when he fails to execute justice and, and fails to recognize the Imago Day in every man, God says, I see what's happening. Man may get away for a short while, but I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, that man will not get away forever. So this is what God is saying to the children of Israel. Now, these, these, are, these are God's people. These, these are people who have become complicit to the evil 
and join in the evil in society. God has a problem with that because they, they have a reputation to uphold. They, they bear God's name in their, in their relationship, in their covenant relationship with God, and they're not behaving like they are redeemed. So here's, here's, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. God begins to ask them the question, do you know the reason why you don't know what justice looked like? Because you, you have failed to walk humbly with me. You have lost your moral compass because of your idolatry. The people call on God in their ethnic pride like they are entitled to God for God to hear them. God says, I still require a posture of humility. See, here, here's God's divine intent in this. God, God wants to deliver Israel. He wants to deliver us. He, he's in a covenant relationship with them and always has their best interest at heart. Israel is suffering from a case of spiritual amnesia, and they seem to have forgotten the parameters of their unique relationship that is spelled out in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. They, they, they failed to... To, to realize and, and they need to, de, to be reminded that they are in a covenant relationship with God. They were more in tune with the culture around them than they were with the Lord. That they were more in tune with CNN. They were more in tune uh, with MSNBC. They were more in tune with Fox. They were being discipled by the idols of their day rather than being discipled by God. They were, more, they were watching more television, listening to more radio than they were in the Word of God. And so they were being discipled by the world and by idolatrous practices and did not know it. And I will submit to you today, brothers and sisters, I think that's what's happening. And I'm not talking about people in the world who don't know God. I'm talking about we as Christians, sometimes we are being discipled more by the world than we are by God. And, and we must refocus and, and put our attention on God. And so the, 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 the truth of this text uh, speaks to us very clearly. God wants to deliver us. God wants to save us. God wants to, to draw us closer to him. But we have a choice to make as well. You see, God has a standard that he expects them to live up to. He never lowers his standard to accommodate our sinfulness. He doesn't lower his standard to make us feel comfortable. He doesn't assimilate into our sinful culture. He doesn't become a little God so that we can become big humans. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there is a constant reminder of the bigness of God. Isaiah keeps reminding us when he says, thus saith the Lord, God is big. And with the turning of every page, he reminds them how holy and how righteous he is and how sinful they are. But also we see in, in, this, in the text that God has, for God to even bring up these issues, tells us that God wants to remove the obstacle that's keeping them from being rightly related to him. Now, there was a story about a famous preacher 
many years ago, had a clock in his church, and the clock never seemed to keep the right time. Either it was too slow or it was too fast. And people would come to the church just to see the clock. And finally, because it became so widespread, the preacher put a sign over the clock reading, don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. You know, I thought about that because the same is true of people. The real trouble lies deeper than what shows on the surface. The reason sometimes we're too slow, the reason sometimes we're too fast, because the, the problem lies, lives in the human heart. Uh, the problem of sin uh, keeps us, pushes us back, while faith always pushes us forward. So sometimes we, we, we need to be reminded today uh, that, that, that there's a problem that's much deeper in our lives, much, a problem that's much deeper in society. There's a problem that's much deeper than our politics. There's a problem that's much deeper than the criminal justice system. That, that, that's just the root of, that's just a, a band-aid. Some of the things that we're trying to solve, we're just putting band-aids on it. God says you got to go much deeper. We are out of sync with God. God makes an appeal to Israel and says in so many words, salvation and transformation are two sides of the same coin. You can have salvation. You can't have salvation without transformation. You can't have deliverance without sanctification. In other words, I, I want to clean you up. Not only do I want to deliver you, but I want to sanctify you through my word. I want to set you apart. Let me remind you, Israel, God says, who you are and whose you are. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are redeemed, but you have forgotten your redeemer. But not only, not only brothers and sisters, that the, the salvific hand of God begins with the end in mind, that God wants to transform us. He wants to try, he wants, he's, he's out to transform us. But, but the salvation, the salvific hand of God is committed to justice. It's committed to restoration. Verses 9 through 15 clearly indicates this. The word justice is mentioned five times in verses, throughout these verses. Listen to what he says. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. In other words, they, they, justice had moved out of the neighborhood. Justice, they had a long distance relationship with justice. It was beyond their reach. He says, we wait for light and lo, there's darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among the vigorous as though we were dead. We all growl like bears, like doves. We moan mournfully. We wait for justice. There's that word again. But there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions before you are many, and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions indeed are with us. And we know our iniquities. They have a relationship with iniquities. They have a relationship with sin, but they don't have a relationship with justice and righteousness. Verse 13 says, 
transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from following our God, talking oppression and revolt and conceiving lying words and uttering them from the heart. Justice, there's that word again, is turned back and righteousness stands at a distance for truth stumbles in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and whoever turns from evil is despoiled. Those who try to do right, they are demonized. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. There was no justice. This is what Isaiah tells us that they have a justice, they're not justice oriented. That God is about justice. In verses 9 to 15, Isaiah speaks to God on the people's behalf. He identifies himself with them as people, as his people. He confesses with them. He uses the pronouns we, uh, us, and our to express the fact that he is in solidarity with his kindred. Israel responds to the Lord's indictment against them. I, I love the way Isaiah, you know, many times when we hear people, when we talk about past sins, when we talk about reparations, when we talk about lynchings, when we talk about slavery, sometimes there are people who want to, want to say, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. That was then. That, th this is now. But what we don't understand is that many times uh, there, there are people uh, who benefited from slavery and people who are rich because of, of slavery, because many, as, as, as the slaves, as a descendant of, of slaves, we built this joint for free. And brothers and sisters, God, God wants us to understand that we cannot separate ourselves from what has been done in the past. We, we must see uh, corporately, we must see how we have played a role in that, whether we lived in the past or not, but we benefit from it. This is what Isaiah is saying. This is what Isaiah wants us to understand. You see, you see, here's the thing. When we look at 9 through 15, before Israel steps down from the witness stand in God's divine courtroom, they confess their corporate sins, past and present. They don't need a defense attorney to plead their case. They willingly admit that they are guilty and in need and in agreement with what God has said in verses 1 through 8. And as a nation, they come clean with God. As a holy nation, and as a nation that's supposed to be a royal priesthood, they come clean with God. You see, God's people were illegitimately seeking justice while practicing injustice. For God can do a restorative work in Israel as a nation, they must come clean with him. They must dig up the bitter roots of sin and systemic injustice and systemic oppression from the soil of their hearts as a nation, and only then will God restore them to the place where he has called them to be. One of the major themes in Isaiah is the word justice. Throughout Isaiah, the word justice is mentioned some 29 times in the book of Isaiah. It appears in Isaiah more than any other book in the Bible. And when, it, when you really boil, that, boil, boil justice down to its least common denominator, it's about restoration. It's about repairing. 
It's about seeing the image of God in, in every human being, regardless of their ethnicity, sexuality, gender, or age. That every human being has a spark of divinity in them. But we also bear the stain of sin on our souls. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And he says these words, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. So brothers and sisters, we, we, we must come clean with God. God wants us to live justice-oriented lives. He wants us to to live in such a way where the light switch of justice is always on. And we, we, we've got to understand that God, God is about justice. God loves justice. And justice is about seeing the Imago Day in every human being. It, it, it reminds me of the story that was told of a man who was caught and he was taken to court because he had stolen just a loaf of bread. When the judge investigated, he found out that the man had no job and his family was hungry. He had tried unsuccessfully to get work, and finally, he was driven to the point to, to feed his family. So he had stolen a loaf of bread. And although recognizing this extenuating circumstance, the judge said, I'm sorry, but the law can make no exceptions. You stole, and therefore, I have to punish you. And I order you to pay a fine of $10. He then continued looking at the young man. He says, but I want to pay the fine myself. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a $10 bill and handed it to the man. And he said to the man, as soon as the man took the money, the judge said, no, now I, I, I also want to remit the fine. He said, that is, that, that the man took the money. And then he said, furthermore, I, I'm, I'm going to entrust the bailiff to pass around a hat to everyone in this courtroom. And I'm fining everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a man has to steal in order to have bread to eat. The money was collected and given to the defendant this is an excellent example, brothers and sisters, of justice being meted out in full and paid in full, while mercy and grace were also enacted in full measure. Wouldn't it be wonderful we had judges like that? <laughs> Justice-oriented judges, judges who saw the, the, the system for what it is, that the system is built for people to fail. It's built for people to, to get locked up in prison. It's, the system is, is built against black and brown people. That When we begin to see that, like this judge, when we begin to see that, we need some justice-oriented judges, some justice-oriented lawyers, some justice-oriented people who, who said this is wrong and we've got to deal with the system that creates this Jericho Road. So brothers and sisters, the salvific hand of God is committed to justice. And this is what we see in 9 through 15. God, and we see here also that the people 
are coming clean with God. People understand and see in verses 1 through 8, we see bad news that we're all sinners and we're sinners to the core. Verses 9 through 15, we see the children of Israel coming clean with God and they're admitting their faults. They agree with what God has said in verses 1 through 8. But then we also see the good news in this text in verses 15 to 21. Look at what, look at what verses, well, let's go down to 16. Verse 16 says, he saw that there was no one and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in the fury in fury as in a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, requital to his enemies, and to the coastlands he will render requital. So those in the west shall fear the name of the Lord, and those in the east his glory. For he will come like a pent-up stream that the wind of the Lord drives on. And he will come to Zion as redeemer to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, says the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouths of your children. Out of the mouths of your children's children, says the Lord, from now on and forever. Verses 16 to 21 points out that the salvific hand of God seeks to redeem, to bring about redemption. Verses 15 to 21, Isaiah speaks of the Lord's response to Israel's corporate confession. Let us notice the good news in this text. Due to the spiritual fact that God is in a covenant relationship with them, God says, I cannot deny myself that even though you are faithless, Israel, I will continue to be faithful to you. He takes the divine initiative to intervene and makes a promise to redeem Israel. And what God is really saying to Israel that he's saying, I have an end game in this, uh, that I'm the uh, original avenger. And he says, uh, and he he uses the word where he dresses up in his military regalia and he he promises to execute justice. He promises to to be a justice-oriented God. He promises to, to seek and save those who are lost. He promises to bring those who are evil to justice. And so we see God acting as an avenger in this particular passage. And the good news here is that we see this word redeemer. It's also called next of kin. And it indicates a family context of a person in a position to be concerned, but to enact protection and provision and to defend those who are left out, those who are locked up, to to, to defend those who are vulnerable, to defend those who are voiceless. Old Testament uses the term, this term to refer to God's relationship with Israel 
as well as to the action of a human person in relation to another. We see this in the book of Ruth and Boaz's relationship with Ruth, that he becomes the kinsman redeemer, and he marries Ruth, and he, he encourages Ruth, and he gives her a solid foundation. He protects her, and he provides for her, and he defends her. And such is the case that God does for Israel and that Jesus does for us, because this text points to a greater reality that Christ is our kinsman redeemer who came to redeem humanity from the reign of sin. He's coming a second time to receive his own and to give full deliverance. What I want us to see here is that salvation, justice, and righteousness is ultimately accomplished in the death and life of Christ. Isaiah, no doubt, was looking much further ahead. He was looking futuristically, knowing that there, were, there will be a redeemer who will come and he will purchase Zion and he will buy back everything that has been lost. So we must put our hope, brothers and sisters, in a risen Savior and not in fallen humanity. Because that, I think that's where the problem lies when we as, as Nietzsche said, that he, he, he would believe in our Redeemer if we act a little more redeemed. But we, we tend to treat what we can see as if it's the redeeming factor, rather, this, rather than to treat the one we can't see, but we see his handiwork, that he is our Redeemer. So stop putting our, our trust and all of our hope in our political system at best, our political system is a man-made system that is, is falling to pieces. Uh, stop putting our hope in the criminal justice system and live as the church, as a justice-oriented church, to hold our society accountable. Stop being complicit to what we see in society and closing and, and turning a blind eye to what we see happening in society. Keep the switch on of justice so that when we see people being, being, act, being acted upon and being treated as less than human, we must speak up and not become complicit as we have historically been as a church. So I want to say this, brothers and sisters, as a multi-ethnic family of God, we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. Like Israel, we are called uh, to reflect the loving character of God to the nations and show the world the best way to live is in Christ. Uh, we, we've got to live like we are a little more redeemed. We've got to love our enemies, bless them to curse us, do good to them to hate us. Because when the Bible tells us to do that, it's not, God is not saying, I suggest you love your enemies. God is commanding us to love our enemies, to bless them to curse us, to do good to them to hate us, to pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us. The behavior of a people who are a little bit more redeemed. Because I imagine there are other, some other Nietzsche's out there who are just looking for the church to act like we are redeemed. That we were bought with a price. That we are God's prized possession. God wants us to be a little more redeemed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you 
for your word today. We thank you, dear God, that you, uh, for your salvific hand, that you are a God who is committed to justice, a God who's committed to transformation, a God who wants to restore us, a God who has already redeemed us in the person of Jesus Christ. And perhaps, Father, there's somebody out there that needs to know that Jesus has done everything he can to, to reach them. So, Lord God, I pray right now that you will make it crystal clear to some man, woman, boy, or girl that they don't have to be alone, that they can be a part of God's family, and they can feel redeemed. They can feel the presence of God in their lives. And so, Lord, I just pray right now that you would touch somebody and let them know God sent his son Jesus into the world to redeem them and to give them a hope and to give them a future. So, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.